Well, good morning again. If you would open your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6, and we're picking up in verse 12 through the end of the chapter today. We'll be looking really at the overcoming of sin's reign uh, this morning. As we look at these words, let us remember they are the Word of God. Chapter 6 of Romans, beginning in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And I'll stop there with the reading. This is Christ's word to Christ's people for Christ's glory. Amen. Amen. The problems concerning the issues of sanctification are many. Uh, one of those problems deals with passivity. It's the person who has become a pacifist in regard to fighting the war that they have been brought into by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ. That they have begun a battle. A battle has begun in them. And then in some cases, there are those who have never been taught or never have learned or never really enlisted in the battle and they develop what is uh, nothing less than a, a Quaker equivalent of pacifism in regards to the spiritual battle. That's one problem. The other problem is presumption. There is the idea that some would presume upon God's grace and think of God's grace in terms of an automaton, somewhat of that which will do something for you without you having to do anything for yourself. There's this passivity now joined with presumption that God will do what needs to be done, and it requires no active participation on the part of the believer. Again, all these things are really false teachings that have made their way into the church that often are difficult to correct if from the get-go it is not taught. Presumption is something that's maybe even more common than passivity. There's also a problem of neutrality. That is where the person is in terms of sin and in terms of, of the battle, um, they think that there's kind of this neutral territory. They think they found Switzerland, if you would, concerning the Christian faith and that they don't have to fight. And so they're kind of your neutral people. They really aren't one way or another, it seems. And in their own minds, they aren't. But it's a real problem. Because there's no way to be a Christian and to be in the area of neutrality. You have, by virtue of trusting in Christ, chosen sides. And then there is, finally, one of the most plaguing things upon the church, and that is people simply not understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. And all of these combined would contribute to this, but... The lack of positively not understanding what the gospel is contributes, it, contributes even more to the lack of people growing in holiness for the glory of God on earth and for the sake of his name throughout the world. It's a real problem whenever we take sanctification, though, and divide it from justification. Because many people would say, well, they're a justified sinner, but not a sanctified one. Well, you can't have one who's justified, who is not also definitively sanctified, and where the work of God has begun in them. If there's no work begun in them, there is no justification. And that's why we labor to make home the point that justification and sanctification aren't able to be separated, though they must be distinguished, or we run into other areas of false teaching. Roman Catholicism, for example, put sanctification um, in the forefront and melts it into justification. And that's why you end up with all types of acts of penance so as to be justified. I think the idea when it comes to the evangelical faith 
is faith will bring equal justification and works. It will bring works. It will bring justification. All that comes together with it in their own order. But it's faith equals that. Whereas you see in other um, religions and other cults and other even humanism, it's always some type of faith in something plus works. And then you end up with justification or plus sanctification unit with justification. So you're putting things in the wrong order by virtue of misunderstanding the gospel. Well, under the grace of God, sin's reign can be overcome. That's the good news about it all is that sin's reign and not only can it be overcome, but the promise in our text is it will be overcome by those of his people whom he saves. God has put us who believe today under grace for the very purpose to overcome sin's reign. It doesn't mean that we will remove sin's presence. It is clear in Scripture that sin remains. Sin remains in the life of the believer. It indwells believers. It is a foreign enemy that is not promised to be removed totally and finally until our deaths or until the final coming of our Lord. So what we do about that is vital and how we view that is vital. That sin is not a separate being in our life. That sin is something that's uncharacteristic of our new life. We are new, completely new. We're not divided human beings. We're not separate persons. We are one person who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, but yet sin remains. Sin is left to remain in God's wisdom for God's glory. And God is glorified when He has saved one of His elect people, bringing them to faith by the Holy Spirit, and He has now enlisted them into the battle to conquer sin so as to bring glory to that which is much greater and glorious and beautiful and worth treasuring over sin. It is a triumphal parade throughout this world as Christians take up the duty to fight successfully against sin, which of course is another problem when Christians are not taught that they can, let alone they will, be successful in this fight. It's vital that we understand the need to conquer, but the good news is that we are under grace so that we will conquer as Christian believers, as justified in our Lord Jesus Christ. And today what we're looking at in these verses is how God has revealed this sin will be conquered in our lives. It involves not passivity, but it first involves an active entering into and enlisting in the fight against the tyranny of sin. In the first verse we read, verse 12, what we find is that we are not to let sin remain unchallenged. Sin is there, and it would be nothing less than a passivity to let it remain unchallenged and a great danger. And to understand this better, I want to look at a good amount of scriptures. It may not may be all we are able to cover today. I have three divisions to cover under this one thing, and it may be we cover one, but we'll we're going to cover it thoroughly. And I want to walk with you directly through the Bible as to the importance of not letting sin to be unchallenged in your life. And so let's look at first Mark 4.19. You don't have to turn there, but you're welcome to. As I'm going to walk through the New Testament in particular from the Gospels all the way to the end of the Bible concerning this issue. 
And so we look at first uh, the matter of what Paul is speaking about. Let me just read that text so it's clear in your mind. He says, let not sin, therefore reign. Notice he doesn't say, don't let it be. He doesn't say that. He's not entrusting us the responsibility to remove it. He says, don't let it reign. It will be present, but it doesn't have to rule. Christian's job here is not to be passive to that, not to leave it unchallenged. Don't let it reign in your mortal body. Speaking here, like the body of sin, I think, of, a, of that fallen capacity of man, not just the physical body. It speaks of the whole fallen aspect of man. Don't let it reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, right? Remember, we've died to sin. It's no longer our ruler. So now your job is to not let it reign. So he says, he's not saying don't let it be. He's saying don't let it rule. That's the expectation. That's the call for the Christian believer. Don't let it rule you. And he speaks of these in terms of Passions. Sin will want to make you obey its passions, or that word can be translated desires. That's your your deal, your enemy. So, beginning in Mark 4.19, this is everywhere, by majority, everywhere this word, passions, in its original word in the Greek, passions, shows up in the New Testament. And we're beginning in Mark 4.19, and it says there, and I'll pick up uh, verse 18. The ones who sown have fallen on thorns, they are those who hear the word. Verse 19. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, desires, there's the word, they enter in. They choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Here's the danger. If you let sin remain unchallenged, it will actually keep you from hearing the life-saving word of Christ. The soul-strengthening word of Christ. That's how dangerous it is to let sin, which desires its desires, its passions, that it want to rule you, if you let that remain unchallenged, it actually is said by Scripture to affect your ability to even hear. And largely our spiritual health depends upon our ability to hear and receive the word of God. Scripture tells us clearly and plainly, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But if the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in, it says those things will choke the word. And it'll prove unfruitful. It's vital that we fight against the very thing that presents the greatest challenge to us in growing as Christians. And that is the challenge of the attention that sin wants to take us towards, and that is the cares of the world. It will choke out your ability to receive the food to nourish you. It will become an obstacle in your spiritual growth, keeping you from being able to digest and enjoy that which gives you life. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a pretty serious matter that should all of a sudden make all men and women in Christ Stand up spiritually against the sin that dwells within. The second is jumping a good ways ahead to Colossians. In chapter 3, verse 5. And you know chapter 3 of Colossians is a grand chapter concerning this issue of sanctification. Because it starts out with if you've been raised... With Christ. It can be translated since you have been. Since you've been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ is your life appears, then you also appear with Him in glory. It goes on to say, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So here's your verse. The verse speaking of, it says that these passions, they are called, uh, they, they are, they are these passions that are called evil. It's described evil desire. And they are lumped in with a variety of descriptions concerning that which is earthly, that which is earthly in you. It dwells in you. And it intends to be a ruler over you. And the seriousness of this, like the first text that deals with it will keep you from hearing fruitfully, this here will make you an idolater if you do not challenge the sin that dwells in you. And instead of worshiping God, you will worship something else other than God. This is written to Christians. This is written like Paul wrote to Christians in 1 Corinthians 10. It said, remember Israel? Remember by majority what they were? They were displeasing, displeasing to God. And why was it that those things happened? Well, they happened for examples. So that we would not be idolaters as they were. And be laid dead in the wilderness. That's why it happened. And here, Paul is bringing this language back and telling us plainly and clearly, if you do not fight these desires, if you do not come up against these things, if you do not come against the reign of sin, keeping it from ruling over you, then in all reality, you will be guilty of idolatry. You will break the very commandment that speaks about making that which you would bow down to. Of course, Calvin tells us it's a, a factory of idols in our very hearts. Sin remains, but it ought not reign. And therefore, you ought to stand up in your spiritual self and fight sin. Lest you want to be an idolater. And no Christian wants to be an idolater. They want to be a bona fide worshiper of Christ with genuineness and sincerity. But if you don't stand up and fight against sin and let it go unchallenged, not only will you be robbed of hearing effectively, but you'll be guilty of committing idolatry. Then there's 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9. It said, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire, there's the word, passion. They desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, there it is again, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. These are called senseless and harmful desires. Remember back in our text with Romans that we're dealing with, that Romans is talking about the sin that will make you obey its passions. And these are the passions. They are senseless and harmful passions that in this case are related to the desire and inflaming that desire to be rich. And it says that this here, when it rules over you, this senseless and this harmful desire, it will plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away. It will cause you to wander away from the faith. It will pierce you through 
with many pangs. Paul is obviously saying this foremost to Timothy, dealing with false teachers, dealing with the contentment that is necessary in the Christian life. But Paul, who also wrote this, wrote it because it is an exposition largely back of that passion that desires to rule over every Christian. That is senseless and harmful to your faith. It will cause you to wander away. It's a false notion that many have put out there in order to present a counterfeit comfort to say that all who wander are not lost. The fact of the matter is, is that many are. And if you were to take that actual text in context with the literature where it is written, the lesson is starkly different from the way it's being used on t-shirts and books and otherwise. The text has a a context, and the context of the Christian life is that you never want to be found wandering. That's why we sing, sing that we are prone to wander. We're prone to that, but and we feel that, but we must not let it remain unchallenged, or it will lead us away. So not only do you have, if these passions remain unchallenged, they will rule you. They will keep you from hearing fruitfully the word of God. And they will also plunge you into destruction and they will lead you away from the faith. It can be said that many, many genuine Christians are led astray because they are not educated in the area of sanctification. I mean... The responsibility here foremost is upon those who hear today. We ought to remember the moment that a person trusts Christ by faith, the battle has begun. They are but an infant in Christ. And they are going to need to learn these things. These things must be taught to them. Because just like a physical baby, we do not simply say, okay, here, Here's the bottle, sit it in the room. Just let them be. No, you don't let that be. You don't sit them out in the world. You don't do like many people have done with their young people and put them out on the internet as if it's neutral territory. There are some things they're not ready for. There are some things they ought never go down the venture of. But certainly in infancy... There is a clear rule, and that is there needs to be some nurture and teaching that goes on so as to nourish them and help them to receive the food and help them to grow. And they have to be taught and tutored in their childhood on up that they might receive what is good, reject what is evil. There is a labor that is ensued not only upon them who have to take personal responsibility at the point that they can cognitively do so, but it is also incumbent upon those raising them. And part of the church's job is to inform the church on these things. Because if sin remains unchallenged in the individual, it will affect the whole body. It won't be just plunging people to destruction individually. It will plunge a whole church to destruction. It will lead a whole church away and astray. It will take people down roads in which they don't have happiness, but they are choked out by the worries of life. And instead of the people being full of the joy of the Lord, which ought to be their strength, they are full with the same cares of the world that the world has. Youthful mm-hmm. lust is next. First, um, we have First Timothy six nine. I'm just going to back up to First Timothy two twenty two. Or maybe second table if you want to. Yes, second Timothy two twenty two. Correct that. Go back to this at some point. Second Timothy two twenty two. He's speaking to Timothy, of course, foremost. But anything he's saying to Timothy is so that he passes it on to those hearing him. He's telling him. 
So flee youthful love passions. That's the, the same word, passions, back in Romans 6. That sin will have you obey these passions. These youthful passions, flee them and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Notice there's several things here. That is, those who call the Lord from a pure heart are to be together pursuing these things, faith and love and righteousness and peace. That's positively what they're to pursue. But they can't pursue those things if they don't negatively flee youthful lusts. Now that doesn't mean it's just a temptation for those who are younger in age. Those lusts are youthful lusts that remain in any person who has not learned to fight and contend against sin and let it remain unchallenged. Youthful passions, youthful desires, as it says here, passions, these things are to be fled. You, do, you flee these things because you're not strong enough to face them. And you're to flee towards the other things. There are some things that it says you should flee. Idolatry and fornication. You should flee those things. You are not strong enough to play around with those things. The moment there is a sense in which you are in the danger of these things, the scripture from beginning to end, all the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation says, run, flee. Joseph is an example. Fleeing that which would be uh, fornication with his master's wife. And though in her deceit she would get him in trouble in the matter and cry out that which he was not guilty of, he did that which we are commanded to do no matter the reproach come upon us that we would rather suffer for good than suffer for doing evil and we are to flee fornication. We are to run from it immediately. We are not to give it any time. Or it will rule you. It won't just come alongside and be a friend. It will rule you. It will destroy you. Idolatry will do the same. But the point being here, there are some things that are characteristic of youth. And it, it should not, according to Scripture, be characteristic of any of us. We should be challenging that contender that dwells with us. It's a fruit of what it means to be a Christian. Because those who let it remain unchallenged always, there's question in regards to their faith, and it will be proven to be counterfeit. We are to put on the armor against such things. And the way in particular we are instructed to put on the armor on these things is to run with all of our might from them. To not put ourselves in the company of. And to not flirt with these things. Because we admit we are weaklings. You know, when someone is going up against an enemy, they may be able to adequately challenge, no matter how large, but they can challenge them with the strength the Lord has given because of His promises. In the cases of fornication and idolatry, at least, the name two, youthful, youthful passions as a whole, in the case of these things, the scripture tells us we are not adequate to go up against them. Therefore, we are to flee. In other words, the battle against these passions requires running back into the woods as quick as possible. You don't go out in the open field with these things. You don't run out there and say, come on, I can take on anything. No, you can't. That's what a young person will do who has no idea what they're doing. And we are called to equip and train people so they know when it is to run and when it is to fight. They are fighting in some cases when they run such as this. Running here is not cowardly. Running here is part of the battle. 
There's a time when you are outnumbered. There's a time when you are outweaponed. There's a time in which you must have the wisdom to run. And this is the case. This is part of the battle, knowing when to run. There are other things. 2 Timothy 3 describes the desires here to be um, various. Look at verse 6 of chapter 3 where it says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. What is this? Various passions. This means that these women have taken up a multitude of passions. They are ruled by them. They are weak. And they are the very target of false teachers. Well, this is a warning, isn't it? To the widows. It's a warning to the women. It's a warning to your vulnerability. It's a warning to the fact that you must, as women, fight sin and not let it be unchallenged. Not just when you're young women, but when you become older women. Sin does not let up at a certain age. Sin actually can ramp up at a certain age. And therefore, as women of all ages, the Scripture teaches us that as life goes on, and you may be alone, and you may be in a place where you are dependent on the church, that you are no less out of the battle against sin. Because if you would let it remain unchallenged, you are now vulnerable to men like this who will actually prey on you. And unless you want to become a prey of these wicked men, then it is your responsibility to never let sin be unchallenged in your life. It's vital. The Christian life does not let you off at a certain point in your age. It doesn't let you off because you are more vulnerable by your sex or your gender. It actually requires all men, women, older men, older women, younger men and younger women all to fight against indwelling sin in their life. It remains, but it ought not to rule any of us. And there's a great cost if we do let it. Now, we run into 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. There's the same word. These are the passions that sin wants you to obey. And will make you obey if you let that sin dwell in you to remain unchallenged. What's the result if you do? Paul tells us that there will be seasons in which it becomes a vulnerable season of time and history. And they will, that have allowed this to rule them, they will heap up, accumulate, Showing that there will be various and many teachers that will be accumulated to suit the passions that have ruled them. And many people will wonder, well, why does the church get so overrun by false teachers? Because the people in that church decided to let the sin in their own hearts go unchallenged long enough to where they began to actually want to accumulate those to soothe and to justify those passions in their lives. 
and they just let it go unchallenged. That's a cost. That's too high a cost to ever pay. Therefore, the individuals of a church body must not let sin go unchallenged, lest they will see a day in which those in the church become the very search committees for pastors and teachers to take over the church in order to justify their sins, and it will become no church at all, but a synagogue of Satan in its actual nature. That's too high a price to pay. Or to make your kids pay. Or your grandkids pay. Because in your life you didn't let sin. Or you didn't tackle sin. And you let it go unchallenged. That's, that's risky. Therefore sanctification is not just so we enjoy the day today. Though it is. But it is so we enjoy tomorrow. And it is so the church grows stronger and the generations to come will enjoy that which we have labored for. Second Timothy is all about the future. It's pushing towards how you're going to have a future as a church. And what you're going to fight against. And Paul is, is by no means mincing words by the end. When he names false teachers by name and those who have done him harm. Which is entirely lawful to do. He's not murmuring. He's not complaining in such a sense. But he is actually citing these things for the good of the church. Throughout all time to learn from. There are also not only these, and they're called selfish, right? Either selfish things, as we see up in that third verse. They're to suit their own passions. It's for their own selfishness. They're not thinking about anybody outside themselves. Anything outside their time. That's dangerous. There are also what's called worldly in Titus. Passions. Titus chapter 2 and verse 12. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Okay? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's what the grace of God does. It trains us to renounce these things. To not let them remain unchallenged. But to renounce them with ungodliness and positively to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. You can't do anything about the age you live in. You can't do anything about the sin that dwells with you. But you can refuse to let that age characterize you, and you can refuse to let sin remain unchallenged in you. To let it rain. You refuse to let it rain. And therefore you challenge these things which are called worldly. Edwards, I think, gives a, a picture of this. A picture of how, practically speaking, maybe to keep yourself from this. And it's, of course, Scripture gives us, there's a negative and positive, this is the greatest wisdom. I think this is a practical thing that came to mind as I looked at this particular challenge of a passion that wants to rule you. And that is when he wrote in his resolutions, don't do anything you wouldn't do if it be the last hour of your life. It's a good resolution just to have in hand, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of things, we might contemplate that in that very moment. We might say, would I do this in the last hour, if it was the last hour of my life, would I go about this? I don't think that that's something that you're always having to ask, but I think when there is some, some wavering on your part, you don't know what to do, ask that question. Ask, if this was the last hour of my life, would I do that? It would solve a lot of problems. The question also comes about with these worldly passions is, what are the opposite of these worldly passions? And we look down and we see 
self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. That is what is opposite of the world system, the worldly ways. And God is always giving us not just a negative to put off, but to put on. He's not leaving us naked and ashamed. The gospel never leaves us naked and ashamed. It's it's something to be proud of, beholding, glad to have, something that clothes you in this life and the life to come. There are many things. We'll try to get through a few more. Let's look at 1 Peter. There's a lot in 1 and 2 Peter. 1 Peter in chapter 2, verse 11. It says here, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now this is a new insight, a a more crystal clear insight, because it's telling us these passions have declared war and are waging it on your soul. If that's not a reason to go after these things and let them no longer be unchallenged, this is certainly one in which gets our attention because it tells us plainly, by the inspired writ of Scripture, it tells us plainly these passions that Paul talked about, Romans 6, that sin would have you to be ruled by, are actively warring against your soul. You may try to be neutral, but they're not neutral. You may be passive, but that's not passive. And therefore, to let these things go unchallenged is nothing but signing up for disaster and defeat, and that's not what you're destined for. You're destined to grow and glory in Christ Jesus to the end. Mm So that's 1 Peter 2.11. Look at verse chapter 4 and verse 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Stop there at verse 1. So we know that here it is reinforced again. If you're dead, you've ceased from sin. Dead people don't sin. But you're not. You're in the flesh. In the way he's speaking of it here. And he says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for what? For the will of God. Positive and negative. The negative is sin dwells. Sin remains. It ought not rule. Therefore, you're to fight sin. Don't let it be unchallenged. But positively fight it that the will of God may be done. The pleasing good will of God may be accomplished. We see it later come up in Romans 12. A lot of these things Paul will introduce will come and be fleshed out even more and more and more as we go in Romans. But in 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4, 2, we see this human, this human, not divine passion. But when we fight against the human passion in this way, then we're living for a passion for the divine. All right, 1 Peter, we see 4.2, verse 3 says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So, Peter's saying, 
The time has passed for doing what these Gentiles, the world, the worldlings, what they want to do. That's what they would want you to do. And that's what sin would want you to do and the passions that it would have to rule over you. That's, it's not neutral. It wants you to do these things positively. It will seek to persuade you. It will seek to belie you. But then it says, time's passed for that. And it describes it. Sensuality. Passions is the word that we see in chapter 6 of Romans. Together with drunkenness. Orgies. Orgies would, would encapsulate just lavish parties. Which is why we see drinking parties. And lawless idolatry. None of those things should ever be characteristic of the church of God. These things should not be the way we live. Peter says it's way time past for that sort of thing. And therefore there has to be something worth fighting for in that area. Because it would be so easy, wouldn't it? To join in with what the world desires for us to do. And many are doing that. Why are they doing that? Why are those in the name of Christian ministry not above reproach in the area of these things? It seems that their Christianity looks like nothing but a big worldly party. Why is it? Well, we know from Scripture in Romans 6, it's because these men and women have left sin unchallenged. And over time, it has become commonplace for them. They see nothing. They wipe their lips like the adulteress and say, I have done no evil. Join with us. Scripture has more authority over our lives, though, than their persuasion. We should be characterized differently from these worldlings. Now, 2 Peter 2. Second Peter 2 and verse 10. It says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. There's the word. Defiling passion. And despise authority. Bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Here it is that we see. Especially. It says here, backing up verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He's talking about them. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is a very interesting verse here because what it's describing is characteristic of those who are already being judged. They are given over, just like Romans tells us, to these defiling passions. Letting sin remain unchallenged in this way to rule you characterizes you with those who are under condemnation and that you are not. So you should not take this on. You should not go that way. You should not let sin remain unchallenged or you'll be like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, caught to be caught and destroyed. You're just going on. Isn't that the picture? Like an animal, just by instinct, going along as it feels the way it wants to go. That is not the way of the Christian life. The Christian life is a battle against the sin that remains. It is not that which is passivity. It is not just going with the current. It's going against it with all of his or her might for the glory of God. It has said, I will not let that sin, which is at war my soul, remain unchallenged. Second Peter 2.18, if you drop down, says, 
For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Backing up, these are waterless springs, mist driven by a storm. For them, gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And then it says those words. After it, it says they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Now, the picture there is, is vast. It's a picture that you expect it to produce something good. But these are people. And instead of these people producing something good, they're empty. But yet they're promising freedom and fullness to people around them. But they themselves are not producing anything good themselves. They themselves are empty people. And these are enticing the church with loud boasts of folly. This is where, instead of actually having something that fill people's souls, that actually is able to help them overcome sin, that is actually able to bring joy to their lives, having that inadequacy in them, instead of leading people to an admittance that their only hope is Jesus Christ, and that they must put their faith in Him alone, and that they must be filled by Him alone, they must depend on Him every day, and they must come and gather together, needing to stir each other up to love and good works. They offer various ways of freedom that are outside of the instructions of the Word of God. And so to excuse their own inadequacy, when they get to the point of their lack of confidence, what they do is they boast louder. They speak louder of it. They increase their passionate zeal. They put some eloquence on it. They shout. They stomp about it. They get themselves inflamed and angry at it, but they do nothing in their lives that proves themselves to be fruitful followers of Jesus Christ. It's all talk. And they have no substance. And these are the type of people that threatened the church of the first century. Those who, just like the prophets back thousands of years ago, whom it refers to back concerning Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing. These are the men, empty men, men that will lead you the way of sensuality and destruction in the name of religion. They will not lead you in the way of holiness. They will not lead you in the way of reverence towards God. They will not lead you in the way of ultimate happiness or even present joy. These are sensual men. Chapter 3, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. There we get a connection between the desires there that rule over them. Why are they scoffing? Why is it that their lives, their ministries, their families, their homes, their churches are characterized by scoffing? And they can't help but to scoff. That's all they do is scoff at things. Nothing more than disgruntlements and complaints and saying they know better than this person and that person. You're charged, Christian, to never even sit in the seat of these men. Let alone listen to them. But more importantly, do not become like them, which is the ultimate end when you find yourselves imbibing this. These are scoff producing. When sinful desire rules you, the characteristic flowing out of your life is you become a scoffer. We just have two more. These desires, these desires are desires that do not have the love of God in them. First John chapter two, verse 17. And they're passing away. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We see here these passions, 
that sin wants to have rule over you are characteristic of things that are passing away. You don't want to be associated with that which is intended to be destroyed by God. The opposite of such a life that is attached to that which is not passing away, that has taken up challenge against the one that is not to be, not to remain unchallenged, are those who are in pursuit of the good, pleasing will of God that abide forever. Psalm 1 tells us what it is. Those who remain in the judgment, remain standing in the judgment, those who will be able to stand in the assembly of the righteous, we see the same here. You just don't want to be attached to those things that are simply being taken down the stream because they have no soul in them. The last is this. Jude 18. Remember Jude is, if anybody tells you to turn to Jude chapter 3, right there, check out. Jude 18 they said to you, the last time there'll be scoffers, this is characteristic of it, following their own ungodly passions. So much there. Selfishness, ungodliness, their own passions that ruled over them because they let sin remain unchallenged. And it's either unchallenged, isn't it? It's unchallenged because the person never is in Christ, or it's unchallenged because the person who's in Christ hasn't been taught to challenge it. And God wants His church that's in Christ to act like Christ and fight and challenge the sin that remains. Jude, if you remember, is so much wanting to talk about more pleasant things. He's wanting to come out and give a treatise just on the good news. But he says he can't. Why? Because there's something that's Present that's affecting the church so badly that now he must write on this subject. And on this subject, he tells us in this text, speaking the same subject of what Paul is saying, you cannot let sin remain unchallenged. These are ungodly passions. Not to be followed, not to be let alone, or they will lead you, but to be fought against and Conquered. So, we've covered just the first thing. Let's let's put it in a nutshell. Let's put it into how it affects this whole big idea of overcoming sin's reign. The question is how. Not passivity. Not by ignorance to the fact that this indwelling sin has already determined to challenge you, to lead you, and to take you captive, and to rule your life. That sin remains. God has let it remain. You are forgiven your sins if you trust in Jesus Christ by faith and in His perfect atoning grace through Christ. Who is dead, buried, descended to hell, raised the third day, and ascended to heaven at the right hand of God Almighty is coming again to judge the living and the dead. You are completely not under condemnation. You've died to sin. You're alive to Christ. But you are to be taught, according to Scripture, that the sin, though it has been conquered by Christ in the sense of paying for your sins, you have been now given a commission to not let the remaining sin in your life to go on unchallenged. For you as a Christian, you have been enlisted in this battle to challenge this sin and to positively fight against it. I'll close with a story where we have a woman that I remember uh, discussing and reading about um, who Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher of London, um, his wife went on a visit to a member of the church. And this lady whom she visited had, um, had sought to 
challenge her sin, not as a soul enemy, but as simply an enemy of the body. And so therefore, when she came to her and met the woman and spoke to the woman, she immediately noticed that her eye was put out. That she had one eye. And so Mrs. Lloyd-Jones visits with her and eventually, obviously, the conversation comes up about why is it, ma'am, that how what happened? Was there an accident? Was there some sort of problem? Was there some uh, deformity you were born with? What happened where you have lost your eye? And the lady had told Miss Lloyd-Jones that that removal of her eye was done by herself. She took her eye out, believing that it was an obedience to the command of God to fight sin. She physically removed her eye in a real, actual account of somebody living in London at the time of Lord Jones. A woman took her eye out because she was so ignorant of how to fight against sin that she thought if she took out her fleshly eye, it would somehow remove the passion that wished to rule over her. And she testified it didn't. It didn't. The change of that physical body of that woman never conquered sin. She had to be then taught by Mrs. Lloyd-Jones and by Mr. Lloyd-Jones and by a church. She had to be taught the battle is a spiritual fight against the inward man and a fight against that old nature, that old person who no longer characterizes you. It is a fight against the behavior of who you were, but is not who you are. It has nothing to do with physically tearing out the eye, tearing off the limb, or let us put it this way, because we might laugh and scoff at the very situation she did this, but at least she was serious. She read scripture and said, well, it must mean this, and she took it out. I mean, I would recommend that she might have done some more research. But shall we scoff and laugh at somebody who actually was serious about it when so many people are simply passive about it? The reality is we have a battle that we need to be willing to figuratively speaking tear out and cut off whatever would keep us from being identified fully and finally with the Lord Jesus Christ. It ought to be that God's people characteristically are people that have joined the right war. And there are all types of battles being enlisted by ministries, by teachers, false ones, that are enlisting people in their battle for their kingdom and for their ministries, but it has little to do with actually bringing the happiness and the holiness and the truth and the joy that comes only when individuals take up the responsibility to fight valiantly against the passions that wish to rule over them. The problem that Scripture points out is tremendously individualistic in the church. It has to do with individual believers dealing with the sin and challenging that which wants to be unchallenged. It has to do with individual Christians in the church taking up arms spiritually and realizing it is not a battle in order to so look tough in the flesh. It is a battle so as to look like Christ in the spirit. There is a vast difference. And we need to learn that. At least at the beginning. And if time permits, we'll pick up this discussion in the next week. Because these are vital issues. We need to be taught these things. We need to be reminded of these things in order for us to have the success that God wants us to have over sin. Politics is not going to fix it. 
It can certainly put some buffer on the society's ills, but it won't fix it. Secular humanism and its education will not fix it. Going through all the right motions in the church, which, which you should, you should, you should become a member of the church, you should be baptized, be accountable to a church body, you should be an active part of the church, and sold out to Jesus Christ, you should be all of that, but what sense is it to do all of that and not be enlisted against the battle against sin in your life? You would only be a harm to the church. If you're never instructed that you have a battle to fight for the good of the church. So yes, it's radically individualistic, but it is radically other centered because it's focused on the glory of Christ and the good of other people. We are not those who cast aside the law. We fulfill it. And we fulfill it by the means of the gospel that he gave us. So much can be said, but let us pause there and stand together and pray to our God and our King. Thank you, Father, for this privilege and opportunity to proclaim these words. We commit to you now, as we close this service, this sacrament of the body and bread of our Lord, represented in the wine and the bread, that we now remember what Christ has done. We seek the strengthening grace of God, your grace, to be applied to our hearts and lives. Lord, you would take the message we've heard and you would apply it to our hearts so that it would be engraven there and it would be uh, written, written upon our soft, fleshly hearts and that we would be those who walk according to it by your power and by your grace. Oh, Lord, we need this. And so as we come and we take and remember Christ, risen from the dead. May we receive the benefits through this here, your ordinance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.